0: morning is 1st Timothy 5 1 through 16 Timothy 5 1 through 16 do not rebuke an older man but encourage him as you would a father younger men as brothers older women as mothers younger women as sisters in all purity honor widows who are truly widows but if a widow has children or grandchildren let them first learn to show godliness to their own household Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows."
1: In this house, we do second chances, we do grace, we do mistakes, we do real, we do I'm sorries, we do loud really well, we do hugs, we do love, we do family. Thus reads a plaque above our piano at home. So in a house with younger children and places to go and people to see, We inevitably step on one another's toes and offend. So it's helpful from time to time for me especially to look up at that plaque and remember the code of our house, that when we make mistakes, not if, we repent and forgive one another in grace. Well, for the past several months, we've been studying the Apostle Paul's letter to Timothy, a church leader in the city of Ephesus. This letter was written in the first century A.D. to Timothy, both to instruct him in his pastoral ministry and to help him organize the church in a way that led to godliness and battled false teaching. And as we've been progressing through this book, we see Paul call the church the household of God, much like our private homes The church is to function as the family of God with all the attendant rules and structures a family requires. And today we see Paul's teaching regarding one specific part of this family, women who are widows. So with our time together, we're going to simply divide this text into the two parts that you can see in your Bible. Verses 1 and 2, we'll see that the church is a family. The church is a family. And then in verses 3 to 16, in this passage Stan has just read for us, we'll see that the church cares for widows. The church cares for widows. First, the church is a family. So last week in chapter 4, we saw Paul instructing Timothy in very practical ways how to lead the church as its pastor. He's to model for the church godliness. He's to teach and let no one look down on his youth. And Paul continues that personal instruction to Timothy here in verses 1 and 2. Still speaking to Timothy, he says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Sounds a lot like what Jim read for us earlier from Titus chapter 2, right? The church is made up of people of different genders, different stages of life, different ages, and there to relate to one another in appropriate ways in that diversity. First, Paul says Timothy, as his pastor, likely in his 30s, is to relate to older men with respect. He says there in verse 1 not, that Timothy's not to rebuke them. Uh, that doesn't mean he's never to rebuke them. <laughs> I know that's what the text says, but that word there has more of the sense of sharp, severe rebuke. Timothy, of course, as an elder, is to teach and even confront older men in the church. But never in a way that is dishonoring, or severe, or harsh, or sharp. He's to instead appeal to them, exhort them, encourage them as those who are older than him. And to make it down to earth for Timothy, Paul says, treat older men like you would a father. I know some of us have strained or broken relationships with our earthly fathers, But I think we all have a concept for what it looks like for a child and his father to have that healthy deferential respect and love in how they behave towards one another. So Timothy is to treat older men in that way. And like we see in verse 2, older women in that way as fathers and mothers worthy of respect and care and honor. Paul also addresses those who would be younger than Timothy. With these, he's to exhort and encourage them as well. But he's to see them as brothers, not below his status, but equal with him in the family. Of special importance is the way Timothy is to relate to younger women. Paul says he is to encourage them as sisters in all purity. Timothy, as a young man who would be pastoring young women, must be above reproach in how he shepherds and cares for them. He must not take advantage of them in their vulnerability. A pastor often speaks with younger women about sensitive issues and pastoral issues. And so there's a sense of vulnerability that the pastor must never take advantage of. And church, this warning is ever more important in the church today in 2018. There is a constant danger for pastors to abuse their power by committing sexual sin with women in the church. I think this can also apply this morning for our purposes to all the male members of the congregation because we're going to be meeting in small groups we'll have families over for dinners in our homes as men then we must be on guard not to give into temptation or to allow sin to take roots in our hearts in areas of physical or emotional attraction brothers in this area don't trust yourselves bring other men into close accountability with you when you're tempted even if it seems small and innocuous have relationships where you can make those feelings known when sexual temptation is made known to others it begins to be defanged losing much of its power sexual sin thrives in secret so, brothers, bring it to the light. And beware, there is no joy there. There's only pain. And, dear church, these first two verses here remind us that the church is a family. It's not merely a club or a nonprofit organization, it's a family. I wonder if that sounds strange to you this morning. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the church, perhaps we're so glad you're here. But, Perhaps that sounds a little cultish or weird, like calling one another brother or sister. It's kind of like the Soviets calling each other comrade, right? What's this group you guys are brewing? But just so you know, we haven't chosen that language. That language is straight from the gospel. See, the Bible doesn't, contrary to popular opinion, the Bible doesn't call everybody God's children. So yes, in a way, we are all God's children in the sense that he has created us, But usually when the Bible talks about people who are children of God, it's talking about those who have been brought into God's blood-bought family through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Why do we need that new family? Well, in our sin, we're in rebellion against the God who created us. We're separated from him. He is not our father. He is our enemy. We have set ourselves in opposition against him, and we are like orphans, Scattered from his loving presence. He can't tolerate our sin and we can't endure his holiness. We're estranged. But God was not content to leave it that way. Praise him. He gave his only son to come and to take on our estrangement. To take on our enemy status. To take on our sin. So that God could crush him for our sin. So he could take our punishment and we could be set free. Jesus died so that if we repent of our sin and trust in what he's done, our sin will be placed on him, not on us. We'll be spared God's judgment. We'll be given new life. The beauty of the gospel is that God gave his own son to be made his enemy. So that his enemies could be made his son's. If you haven't turned to Christ, do so today. And if you do, you will no longer be estranged from this God. You'll no longer be an orphan. I love how Paul describes it in Romans 8. He says, for you, he's talking to Christians, did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption of sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Fathers. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Every Christian has been brought into the family of God and been made His adopted sons and daughters. And that new family relationship doesn't only have a vertical component, we're no longer estranged from God, it also has a horizontal component. And it takes away the estrangement, or begins to take away the estrangement we have from our brothers and sisters. Now we're no longer alone, but we are connected to a family. We have brothers, we have sisters, we're joined together in the church, which is a family of God. So calling the church a family is not just a cute 21st century way to build community. It's rooted in the gospel itself. We're family because Jesus has bought us with his own blood, poured out in our place, given us the place of adopted sons and daughters in the Father's family. So it's in this context, then, that Paul commands Timothy to relate to men and women in the church like he should in a family, to treat them in similar ways he would treat his own physical family. Ultimately, he'll spend eternity with this family. And so will those of us who have trusted in Christ But in the meantime, I wonder, do you have a hard time connecting with this family? We call ourselves a family, we call ourselves a community. But I don't pretend that that doesn't mean none of us will ever feel isolated or alone in the church. Perhaps it's because of a certain sin that you think will ostracize yourself. Perhaps it's because of your background or preference or lifestyle perhaps it's just because of your temperament and personality you don't click with anybody brother and sister if that's you i'd encourage you to find someone you trust in the church and commit to praying about that talk to me about it if you'd like but don't leave it stew God has given you this church family, not because we're the perfect fit for you, but because he has purchased us and joined us together by his perfect son. This church will not meet all your needs. But will you be content to live in an imperfect congregation as we wait for a perfect savior? For those of you who are introverts, I understand this can sound exhausting. I mean, not only do you have to deal with your own nuclear family and then your extended family, but now you've got a whole church family as well. I mean, what are you supposed to do with 25 moms in the church? It sounds overwhelming. Relax. Your father has not called you to something that will not be for your ultimate joy. You don't need to know everyone intimately in this congregation. But you do need to know some people intimately in this congregation. Do you? Do you really know them? Do they know you, the real you? Do they know your struggles and how to pray for you? The church is a family, sometimes a dysfunctional one, but a family nonetheless. So pray that we would work together and care for one another in that way until Christ, our older brother, returns. The church is a family. Secondly and finally, in the bulk of the passage, is how the church cares for widows in that family. Perhaps to you, this may seem a bit random for Paul to be spending half of a chapter in a brief letter on how to care for widows. But throughout scripture, we see that widows are near and dear to the heart of God. So Corey read for us earlier from Psalm 146, where the psalmist says, the Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. If in the New Testament, there are also examples. So, in the book of James, we read in the first chapter that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Widows, those left without husbands, are to be cared for and loved by God's people. We see there in verse 3 that Paul says we're to honor these women. The context of the passage kind of gives that word honor a weight that means material or financial support of those women who will often be left without a way to earn a living. If the church of God has household rules, one of those is to care for the vulnerable and helpless among us, especially widows. But before Paul dives into how the church is to care for widows, he first has words for the nuclear and extended families of those widows. Do you see that? Verse 4. If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. And then in verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Again, this is... The theme that we've been seeing in this letter, that Paul is emphatic that our Christianity, our faith, must not only be sound doctrine and sound teaching that refutes error, that's essential, not sufficient, because our Christianity, our faith, must also be shown in our lives, in our godliness, in our conduct. If that doesn't happen, if the fruit isn't there, then we have good reason to suspect the faith isn't there either. We see this here again in the way Paul exhorts families to care for each other in the church. There in verse 8, Paul says, if we don't care for members of our own household, we're worse than unbelievers. Even non-Christians recognize that not caring for families is wrong, something there doesn't smell right. As Christians, we must see that all the more, right? The gospel must lead us to appropriate care and compassion, not only within the church, but within our own homes. Paul specifically mentions widows who would be in our nuclear and extended families, mothers, grandmothers. And again, we see here that the home is the training ground for godliness. We saw that with deacons and elders, and we see it again for widows and for those who would care for them. Because if there's no godliness in the home, then how can we expect godliness to come in the church? So, dear brothers and sisters, dear family, how is your home life? If we had to peek into your house during this past week, would we see you striving for godliness? I'm not asking if we'd see perfection. No raised voices, no laziness, no anxiety, no stress. No, I'm asking if we would see hearts with a posture of need for the Lord. Leaning on him, striving after him. I mean, I'll go first. I need help in this area constantly. I need brothers in the church, and often they're kind enough to do it. Brothers who love me enough to ask me how I'm doing as a father and a husband. to challenge me, to pray for me in areas I struggle with, like anger and laziness. We must be careful to be godly, not just when others are looking, but when those closest to us are looking. I know that that can feel awkward and unnatural because hypocrisy will be constantly leveled as an accusation. We know you best. What's all this about? But that's all the more reason to run headlong into it. Strive for godliness in your home. Don't don't avoid asking your family how you're doing in this area. And be warned. Divorcing your home life from the persona you give off at church will be a slippery slope that ends in destruction. Don't start down that slope. Paul is clear. As Christians, we need to care for widows in our families. But what then of widows who have no family? Those are the widows in verse 5 he calls true widows, right? She who is truly a widow is left all alone and has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So, As a church, we're to care for widows who have no nuclear or extended family who can care for them. Widows who are destitute and forsaken, We must care for them. Isn't that what Jesus did for us when we were destitute and forsaken? But Paul is not advocating a wholesale, non-discriminatory compassion toward all widows who come within the doors of the church. Look there in verse 6. Some widows will prove themselves ungodly. They will be self-indulgent, giving in to the lusts of the flesh. We must be discerning in who we, as the church, financially and materially support in their widowhood. And there, in verse nine, Paul sort of changes it up a little bit. Scholars debate back and forth exactly what he's saying here and how verses nine through sixteen might differ from verses three to eight. But I think the most the the best way to look at this is that in verse nine. Paul is talking to a special section of these widows who are truly widows. He's addressing a certain group of those true widows within the church who will be enrolled into a sort of group. These widows will have two things that are true about them. First, they will be supported financially and materially by the church. And two, they will be committed to serving the church as needs arise. He says these widows will, not be, will be not less than 60 Thus, beyond the typical age to desire remarriage, they'll be enrolled into what seems to be a specific group of widows who will support and serve the church and not pursue remarriage. Seems like they'll be committed in a way that pledges them to Christ, to continued singleness to his church. They're older now. They've lived God lives that have proven godliness, and now they're going to, with the rest of the breath that God gives them, devote themselves to the building up of the local church. I think this may be one of the reasons Paul doesn't want younger widows to be part of this group there in verse 11. Because even though those younger widows might and, and will receive support from the church, if they're left all alone, uh, it might not be wise for them to enter into serving the church in this sort of capacity because they're still young and when their passions, their God-given passions to be married again, conflict with their commitment to wholesale service in the church, they may be led to go back on their commitment and incur some sort of judgment or censure, as Paul says there. So Paul's wise he sees the difference here and he sees that because of that possibility maybe these younger widows shouldn't give themselves to the church in that same way shouldn't commit the rest of their lives to singleness within the church that could be a recipe for trouble why well first like we just mentioned their their physical passions will be bottled up and will cause friction to their commitment to Christ Another potential for trouble will be that they engage in idle gossip as they serve the church community, as they go from house to house and learn certain things about certain people. Gossip of that sort will invariably create discord and strife. So instead, Paul says, in his care and love, he says, instead, in their strength as younger widows, marry again, verse 14, manage children and homes so that you will not be given to those temptations, so that enemies of Christ will not be able to speak badly of you. See, Paul is concerned not primarily with our happiness, but with our godliness. Because godliness of specific Christians will reflect on the reputation of Christ's church. And so Paul here says that we must care for one another's souls, and that will always require wisdom and discernment. Because care for souls, even in within this church, will look different for different people. Older widows will be able to give themselves to the church more fully, perhaps. But younger widows should be wise. Not run after that commitment right away, but instead consider remarriage and children. Because that will be the better way for them to show godliness. So what then will this older, enrolled widow look like? as she devotes herself to the church and receives the church's support. Paul starts there in verse 9, and he says she will have been committed to her husband when he lived, much like we saw the elders and deacons. Verse 10, she will have a reputation for good works, and those good works will include bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, and caring for the afflicted. And church, this widow here models for us godliness, doesn't she? In her selflessness and care, she shows us Jesus. She's cared for children, whether hers or others under her care. She has been hospitable in her life, welcoming travelers, strangers. She has been sensitive to the struggles of those who are suffering. She has washed the dirty feet of her brothers and sisters in Christ, much like our Lord Jesus Christ washed his disciples' feet before his death, saying that he has set an example of service for us. These kinds of widows are those who would build up the congregation in Ephesus as they're supported in their service. I wonder, have you ever known these sorts of sisters? I have. In a church I served at for a while, there were two widows in their 70s who served that congregation with abandon and who I will never forget. Ms. Dan- Nancy and Ms. Doris. Some of you would remember them. I treasure my memories of their love, not only for me, but for the body of Christ. I remember every Wednesday night gathering for prayer with them, often just the three of us, praying, praying, and as they prayed, they trained me in godliness. They truly were those widows Paul talks about in verse 5 who continue in supplications and prayers night and day. Now, those prayer meetings weren't perfect. Miss Nancy could hardly hear and Miss Doris could hardly talk. So every, when Miss Doris was trying to pray, Miss Nancy would constantly peek over, is she done yet? Is she done yet? They couldn't even hear other people pray, and yet they came Every night every Wednesday night, to pray and pray and pray some more. Pray for the health of the church and the spread of the gospel. And they did that for years. Oh, that the Lord would grace Loudon Valley with widows like that, with sisters like that. Oh, that we would learn godliness from great women of the faith. Church family, at this time, the Lord has not given us widows in our membership. But when he does, let's be ready to learn godliness from them. And in the meantime, let's learn from these sisters who are our sisters in Christ, who lived 2,000 years ago in Ephesus, those whom Paul loved and wanted to see supported and cared for. Let's look at their qualities and search our own hearts. Let's seek to grow in prayer, self-control, hospitality, service, care. Let's guard ourselves against things like evil speech and gossip and idleness and being busybodies, concerned with other people's affairs, and using those things to make ourselves feel better. Let's learn godliness from the older women in our church. Let's seek our Savior and grow in godliness as a church until our King returns. And let's pray to that end. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this church family. Thank you for the example of godly widows throughout the history of your church. Lord, make us more like your son, we pray, through their example. Bind us together, Lord. Maintain the unity of the bond of peace by your spirit in this congregation as we learn to relate to one another as mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. Bless us as we come to your table now. Unite us in faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.